Hi everyone, welcome to Wish You'd Known. I'm Danny Visser and I'm joined by Glenn James. Hello, hello. And look, this this little chat is about understanding the really impactful stuff within big, chunky contracts and lots of words. So we're nailing down into income protection and the things you and your clients need to know that will matter when the rubber hits the road. And today's expert that's joining us is Adam. Welcome, Adam. So Adam's got many, many years in product research and also has been an advisor. And so he's certainly the person that can help us understand where the devils sit within the PDS detail. Now, Glenn and I have been chatting around, you know, what's our audience and who are we providing value for? So, you know, from your view, you've been an advisor before, Glenn. Like, what? who is this discussion going to help? Yeah, I think I wanted to kind of do this whole podcast with you, Danny, and have experts like Adam Crabb on to talk about things. This is for the newish advisor. This is for the advisor who might not do much risk, particularly this episode. This is for somebody who might be at university who wants to become a financial advisor. So, unfortunately, the next generation. So, unfortunately, if you're uh, about to retire from advice and you've heard it all before, you probably don't need to listen to this. So, having said that, this episode, Danny, IP, it's the bedrock of any financial plan because if the money stops, everything falls apart. Yeah, and it's often what we think we know, but we don't quite know. And the little nuances that pop up at claim stage, and we see it all the time. So, if you have been providing advice for many years and you're dialing in, it, look, it's probably we're going to try and get to what matters really, really quickly and cut out the rest of the stuff. So, hopefully, you get some value. But particularly if you're a new advisor, you will get rock solid value. And if you want to continue the conversation, our Facebook group, My Risk Advisor, jump in. Have a conversation. A lot of uh, seasoned advisors in there, a lot of new advisors. It's a great community. Absolutely. So, Adam, we're looking at income protection, the bedrock. Yep. What are the couple of things that as a, you know, you're giving advice to a new advisor, what are the couple of things that they should really highlight to their client from a product point of view? So, I think moving forward, Danny, the whole uh, – construct of income protection, it's never been more important. I think that discussion around advice, particularly as we move forward into sort of a new income protection era, uh, which is likely to happen over the next sort of year or so. So things like the definition of total disability can just not be understated. Uh, You know, we have, I think, as a nation been quite generous, uh, and Glenn, you may agree with that, um, where the generosity of our product makeup, uh, in essence, that trying to chase for that highest rating uh, has really come unstuck. And if you are a new entrant into the financial advice industry and the insurance world, Mm. uh, it's important to understand the legacy type of products because you will come across them in your professional life. Absolutely. And there are insurance products in market that are so good, insurers can't get people off claim, which is good and bad Mm. for everybody involved. But we are kind of starting to see this stripping back of IP back to this, if you can't work, we will pay you 
and when you get better, we'll stop paying you. Correct. Because bells and whistles <laughs> come with the Rolls Royce price tag, right? So you've you've got that balance. And some people might walk into your office. You're in, you're you're providing advice. They've got these amazing contracts, but they actually can't afford them. So maybe, Adam, if we can start just for those people who might not understand what the typical kind of total disability definitions entail, can you run us through, you know, the things within that definition that actually matter? Yeah, 100%. So at the sort of, I suppose, if you look at an older world type approach, um, sort of the current makeup, you tend to find sort of three definitions or three tier type approach. And these include things like, you know, a fall in hours, a reduction in income or an inability to do certain duties of that occupation. So, that- so let's say I'm, let's say I've got glandular fever. Yep. And I'm, I'm, um, I can do physically all of my duties, or but I can't actually work a certain number of hours a week because I just get too tired. Yep. Like, would I be explain to me how I'd be covered under that? So this is where some of these tier definitions really come into the fore. So if you're struggling in terms of certain duties, that actually may be enough to trigger uh, the payment of a benefit. Um, whereas for others, if you're, uh, if the issue is um, you know something else, uh, maybe not glandular fever, but you just want the ability to maybe just sort of poke your head in the door uh, for a couple of hours a day, no more than a few hours a week, that also may be enough. And I think it's important to note there, Danny, uh, I'll always default when we're having these conversations to the client experience thing and mm-hmm. expectations. Yep. And that's all well and good, but you've got to satisfy the waiting period. Yes. Mm. So, I guess as a deep dive into yep. the little waiting period thing yeah, there, Adam, right. what's the deal with waiting periods and you have to be disabled for three days and the 30 days or all that stuff? Yep. Talk to us about waiting periods because this is the bread and butter stuff and experienced advisors might not know some of the basic things with the waiting period, particularly when it comes to claim. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think what needs to be well understood is certain kind of nuances of these waiting periods. So one absolutely involves um, maybe a period of total disability. So it might be the first, you know, five days, seven days. It could be as long as maybe 14 days of total disability. And then an ability, you know, to maybe work in some capacity could be enough to warrant the continuation of that waiting period and therefore the payment being made after that. But of course, Glenn, Danny, you know, if you've got benefits that may be built in, some can actually fast track the waiting period. So, you know, I think about things like a specified injury benefit or a trauma advancement type benefit. So these are things where people have suffered from a, you know, a fracture of certain bones or maybe unfortunately been diagnosed with, you know, cancer or a stroke, a heart attack. You know, quite often, you know, even with a longish waiting period, uh, you tend to find that some benefits can actually be paid quite quickly, uh, providing that financial assistance that people often need. And these are the complexities as well because it speaks to, and Danny speaks to hundreds of advisors throughout the year, this speaks to the insurer's appetite for uh, claims and their claims philosophy where some insurers, they might see a claim form and say, yep, you've, you've broken your leg so it's an automatic specified injury benefit, so there's your three months, or you, you've got a really bad case of glandular fever and we know you're going to be fatigued look, here's two months work, come back in two months, where the insurer down the road might say, no, no, we want it every four weeks. Absolutely. Regardless. Yep. And this is why you need to get to know your products. You need to get to know your insurers. And I think I'd, I'd make a little little call out as well that you might pre- be able to provide some commentary on, Adam, is 
you know, there's also a return to work capacity in many of these contracts. So you can actually go back and forward from work for a certain number of days. And that will actually have an impact on when um, the waiting period starts and when you actually get through that waiting period as well. And when you actually start to receive the monthly benefit in the client's hand. So I think that that's a really important nuance to dig into is how many days can I return to work before my waiting period restarts and and does that get added or does it a restart? I mean, that makes a huge tangible difference to the client. It does. And while it does sound very technical, really what we're saying to the community is we don't want to disincentivize people from at least trying to get back to work. Um, and, you know, by allowing people to do that, it means that the waiting period can in actual fact, continue. Whereas without some of those definitions you refer to, you know, someone suddenly trying to rock up back to work could inadvertently restart. And this is like, this is so amazing because it's so important for an advisor to know when they are talking with their client mm. that, hey, yes, there's a 30-day waiting period, but rest assured, uh, this insurance company here, if you are sick and you're off for a week, completely disabled, which flicks back to the definition of disability, yeah. And then you try and go back to work for two days, you're not penalised. Correct. And this is the goal that we need to talk about. And I think the other thing to add to that, Glenn, is that while a 30-day wait may appear not much, you know, with many insurers, they don't actually pay on day 30. So there could be another um, you know, 15 days, there could be another month um, until that money hits the bank account. And I think that's really important for clients in the community to understand is, you know, the 30-day wait is one thing, but actually saying to a client, if something happened to you today, how long would it be until you would actually be putting up your hand and saying, I need financial help? Because in actual fact, that 30 days may be 45 or 60. And it was really interesting um, data that I saw the other day that sort of said that a majority of people, and this was sort of pre-COVID, but though around about 40% of people couldn't actually get through Two, they could get through um, one paycheck missing, but they couldn't get out through two paychecks without having to sell assets. Wow. Like that's really scary. Mm. So mm. does your cash flow allow you, yes, you've got the 30-day waiting period, but it's actually going to like typically it's another 30 days until that's actually going to hit the bank account. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, we, um, we asked a question of the broader audience uh, a few years ago where we took that to a selling asset level. And I think that really concerns people where it's not just a, an income suddenly stops, but you now need to start thinking about what assets are you going to sell to try and get money to pay your rent, pay your mortgage. It's amazing, like with this waiting period thing, and I want to get on uh, from this, but most claims that I've had with clients on a 90-day wait, they've asked me, can they ch change it back to 30 days? Because it's all well and good when you're advising the policy on a 90-day because they've got an emergency fund and it's all good and it's cheaper, but you've got to press the client to say, rub hits the road, can you stomach no money coming in for four months? It's a long time. Yeah. So, waiting period, it is nuanced. You need to understand how it works and you need to position it with your clients. Let's talk about, um, let's keep it, you know, waiting period, benefit period. What do we need to know about benefit periods and anything that you've seen in PDSs and policy docs over your years that are cause for caution with advisors and their clients? I think if you're a new advisor, Glenn, one of the things I'd be really mindful of is picking up 
old contracts. So if you do come into contact with a client that's had an old policy that they've picked up, you know, get the dust off it, um, I wouldn't automatically assume um, you want to sort of upgrade them. It's not like buying the latest shiniest mobile phone it's a bit like the opposite in actual fact where some of those older contracts are gold like you know you ask benefit periods some will pay for life yeah there's old amp products that have a Mm -hmm. lifetime Lifetime accident benefit period because i love what you said there because i was at jb hi-fi yesterday looking at the new iphone 12 and he's selling it to me i'm like you don't need to sell it i've got a two-year-old phone newer is better yeah (laughs) Yeah, i've got it but even even in the newer contracts like to age 65 isn't always to age 65. And this is a really, I mean, Adam, what's your experience on this? Is like a, a client might think they've got to age 65, but there are still nuances within that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that as an industry we've, we're now coming in to see is around this affordability issue. Uh, and one of the directives from the regulator, APRA, has been that industry needs to come together and try and um, – Try and better manage some of these longer benefit periods because, as you say, Danny, you're right. You know, to all you know, all benefits to age 65 are not necessarily the same. We tend to find with some, the definition may change after you know two years. Um, one which shifts perhaps away from an own occupation or a series of specific duties, hours, income, to one more broadly based on someone's or any occupation. And even person. even I guess um, even whether it's the policy anniversary before the person turns 65 yes. or the policy anniversary after, like this makes tangible, this can make thousands of dollars of difference to a client. So it's really important, I guess, if you're saying, well, this is policy A, B, C and D and they're all to an age 65 benefit period, well, that's not quite correct. And and really, you need to be aware of that in your price comparisons and highlight, well, there's actually, there's another 18 months or there's another two years that could actually pay out in this particular contract. That's absolutely right. So not all two age 65 benefit periods are the same. I think advisors really need to look under that hood and make sure it is letter perfect because some of them will be to age 64, others to age 66. And as you say, could mean thousands of dollars difference. Some of the product providers went on this lump sum payout thing. Uh, I know my personal policy, I tick the box at application. I claim 90% of the premium. If I can't work ever again, give me my bloody money, I'm out of here type thing. Mm. That hasn't really taken off in the industry as a a big staple Mm. for IP. What's your opinion on that? And I will say you're an employee of Zurich. So, these are your personal views that don't necessarily represent Zurich. Yep. Uh, And you've worked at a lot of different kind of yeah. Country, yeah. Countries or companies Co- as yes. they're otherwise <laughs> as they're otherwise known. And so, my opinions absolutely represent those of Glenn James. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my employer. Uh, so yeah, it's, because it is an option. And yes. I think it's you know, when you do the modeling of uh income till age sixty five or the end of the policy, a lump sum without tax can be attractive. That's pretty good trade off and mm. I've taken that view myself. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? I wonder whether part of it um, sort of stems back to things like a defined benefit scheme. You know, if we think now, if someone's given an opportunity to say, look, give me a lump sum and I'll perhaps choose to invest it and take on that risk, mm. or instead would I be more comfortable just taking those, you know, clipping that ticket, taking that income on a regular basis and having the risk borne by someone else, maybe a large corporate, large life insurer. I personally would take the life insurer for that particular risk rather than doing it myself. Uh, 
What about, uh, and I guess, and this is the great nuanced discussions, what about, um, yeah, you're totally disabled, we're going to pay this off, five years' time, uh, change in medical advancements, oh, old Glennie James, back to it, uh, I've got my money. Yeah. <laughs> like, and these are just the conversations you need to have. Yes. And these are some of the trade-offs, I think, as, a, as an industry we need to consider as part of the, the research portion of the work that advisors do and do well. Okay, taking a bit of a deviation away from that and now talking about income protection offsets, this is a little bit of a minefield and one that's really important for everyone to get their heads around because a happy insurance client is one where their expectations are met. So, Adam, can you talk us through you know, those couple of things that might eat into the monthly benefit that a client expects to receive? So, yeah, there can certainly be situations, Danny, where there may be other income that is taken into account. And while, again, if I sort of draw comparisons here with the retail advised product set, uh, they can be quite favourable where any offsets can actually be quite low. So, they may be sort of somewhat minimised. But I suppose if we go to an extreme, it may be situations where if a client was to have some sort of, uh, and I think you used the analogy before around a car accident um, where, you know, if someone has a car accident, there may be some entitlement to a benefit through a state or territory-based compensation scheme. Mm-hmm. Then what an insurer may do is they may consider those uh, rep- those payments that a client is making and make an adjustment to the amount of benefit which is being paid now. Or potentially able to, like we've seen contracts out there that, it's not even what is received in the hand, what might, like the wording is such that it could be what is likely or possible to be received. That's so right. that's quite a minefield if you've got that in the wording. It is. And generally what we find on the retail side of things is that we will only look at what is actually received, whereas in certain other contracts, be they group, direct, um, you can find situations where, as you say, if there is an entitlement to a benefit, um, however unlikely it may be, or even if there's no intent by that particular customer to reach out for that benefit, it could potentially be offset. And is that for all occupations? Like, let's talk about retail world. Mm-hmm. Is it that, say, your white-collar clients are treated the same as your heavy occupations? Are offsets more... Um, common in that heavy occupation space? Like how's the difference between the white collar world and the blue collar world? Because there are differences in some contracts. There are. It does come down very much to the provider and the product. Uh, What we tend to find um, certainly on the Zurich and OnePath side is that uh, for Zurich, in fact, white collar um, is kind of right on the border. So we tend to find white collar professionals, uh, legal, medical type occupations, the offset treatment um, can actually be really, really favourable. Whereas once you sort of dip down under that sort of white collar-ish type role into, like you say, the blue collar, the sort of skilled workers, the offset treatment can be a little different um, on the one path side, it's more product specific. So um, they've got, I think there's like three income protection products and it's the sort of professional type product where the offset treatment is uh, is more favourable. So just on offsets, uh, if I use the word hard offsets and soft offsets, and by hard, I mean it's in the policy document that we offset workers' comp. We offset uh, third-party you know, car injury claims or whatever that is. 
So those are the kind of hard offsets that are built into the policy. Yeah. No underwriting can get around it. Let's talk about the offsets that an underwriter might put on a policy specifically around ongoing income clauses. And is there generally a threshold that it will trigger that exclusion or condition to be put on a policy before it goes in force? It certainly can. And I think you tend to find this in that sort of self-employed type business model. But I think, Glenn, it really comes down to you know, the applicant, the business, that particular situation. I think what, as an insurer, we're trying not to do is necessarily uh, provide uh, income protection cover if someone who may not be able, or may be unable to work is still actually entitled to a level of income. It would sort of be unfair to almost take premium for clients where there's not likely to be a benefit paid. So, And I think it, it speaks to those who are maybe new to this insurance world to get to know your insurance companies and their underwriting philosophies because I know the insurance company I'm with with my income protection, mm. they didn't ask about ongoing income. Right. And particularly uh, for advisors, for our own policies, you know, if I can't work and I'm an advisor... I still might be getting some recurring revenue from my insurance book, but I want a policy that doesn't look at that. Yes, that's true. And then on the flip side, let's let's look at the other side. There's going to be an affordability piece to that. So someone who's is completely removed from that equation, let's call it your employee, do you want them in a contract with all of that leniency? Because it will help preserve the premium pool, which, you know, is we're all, we're all feeling the pinch of that. So mm. I think it goes both ways. Yeah. And I th- look, if you're a new advisor and you're sort of a bit concerned and thinking, well, hang on a minute, does this mean things like rental income, investment income is going to be offset? No. Um, what we're talking about here is, you know, sort of that earned income or income generated perhaps from a sort of a side hustle or business, not, not income that's earned from an investment or rental property. Yeah. So, just work cover there. Like a lot of people uh, will want to know about, um, like a common question clients ask is, I don't need income insurance because I've got work cover. And then me as an advisor would say, well, work cover doesn't help you when you're skiing on Saturday afternoon uh, and you break your leg. So, if somebody is injured at work, how, like practically, would you suggest like advisors tell their clients to still go to the doctor first and possibly lodge or be under the care of a doctor and then go down the work cover route first and then supplement because the insurer is only going to pay um, a maximum of 75% of their pre-disability earnings. Right. So, I think practically is it better to get the wash up from work cover and let the insurance company sprinkle money on top to get to that 75%? Do you have any experience in your professional life about the practicalities around that? I do. Uh, And I think moving forward, Glenn, it's going to become a bit more complex because one of the things that we're noticing in this sort of post-APRA environment is likely to be uh, a bit more work that's going to be involved in offsets, including things like work cover, workers' compensation, motor vehicle accident claims and the like. Uh, And again, this touches, Danny, onto your point of affordability. So I think that the clear message for people is if you are injured, be it at work or outside of work, it's it's to help those clients really get engaged with a medical practitioner quickly. Uh, and then, as you sort of say, that sort of the, the inner workings, that sprinkle can happen a bit later on. Um, keeping in mind, though, those retail advice policies may not necessarily offset work cover or workers' compensation. Uh, inside superannuation, 
it tends to be a bit more common where we do see those increased offsets um, that do apply to those policies. So I guess that leads into the kind of next kind of buzzword with uh, insurance companies and underwriting and claims, and that's gainful employment. Mm. Now, I won't ask you, Danny, because you haven't had a job in your life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You can tell we've been here all day. Uh, Adam, talk to us about gainful employment. Yeah. So gainful employment is critically important, I think, because when you consider that when someone suddenly something happens to them, they can't work, and then potentially because of that inability to work, they want to reach out and claim on their income protection. Quite often, if there is a structural change in terms of the product being held in super, there can be additional questions which are imposed, not necessarily by the insurer, but from a legislative perspective. So if someone has taken a break from work, they're not gainfully employed, one of the restrictions in the CIS Act um, stipulates that insurers are somewhat prevented from being able to pay a benefit if they're not gainfully employed when something happens to them. Outside of super, it's actually quite a different situation. There's a little, you know, there's there's quite a bit of uh, grace, if you like, in terms of- Well, outside of super, the product can play to its product self. Correct. Correct. So I guess as a, like, as an advisor- You'd probably, and obviously every client's different, but the first port of call, it would be, you know, best IP policy we can get in our own name, paid for us. That's all good. The next layer is the split benefit. We can get best of both worlds. But as a final last resort, at least we got some bloody cover. Can't afford it. Throw it in super. Throw it in super. Now, talk to us about this whole CIS Act thing with gainful employment and particularly around um, if someone's got sick days or holiday pay up their sleeve or anything like that. Yeah, that's a good point. So with the the CISAC, keeping in mind that whole gainful employment piece, so if someone is not working, they really can't claim for an IP benefit inside super, so that's an issue. When you kind of break down gainful employment, does that mean that I need to be working when I'm injured? To make a claim. To make a claim. Generally, yes. And I say generally because there may be situations where if you're on paternity leave or maternity leave that you may still be okay because you're more or less on the books. But if you've taken a, a break from work, you've decided to do a gap year, travel abroad post-COVID. The um, business you worked for no longer exists in COVID world. Correct. Yeah. That's where it becomes problematic uh, mm. because they're not gainfully employed. And this is the, the traps with IP products in super because – you need to satisfy the gainful employment test to qualify for a claim or to at least have the money released out of super. But secondly, you need to not have any benefits up your sleeve as well. And there has to be a time where you're off work and unpaid because you're sick. Is that correct? So offsets do play a more critical role inside super. Uh, And we tend to find things like sick leave uh, do become... Uh, considered as part of that potential offset. So if someone has, if you know, if you're listening and you've got a client and they've been with the same employer for 10, 15 years, it's highly likely they'll have a sizable level of sick leave uh, under their belt. Mm. And that could prove to ex- effectively extend that waiting period when it comes to claim. And uh, it's not just sick leave, is it, Adam? It's like, 
it can be things like long service leave. So this is where you get into a number of those product nuances. But you're right, uh, it could extend to annual leave. It can extend to long service leave. So that waiting period can suddenly shift from weeks into months. And I'd be so disappointed. Like I'm actually, you said that I haven't worked a day in my life, Glenn. So straight back at you. I'm up for my 10 years long service Giddy up, leave. up, baby. Giddy up. <laughs> and I'm off to the races with it. If someone that you have to take your long service leave while you're ill. I'd be so disappointed because, you know, that's something that that I've worked a long time to be able to like go on an amazing trip or, or do something really significant in my life. But also it speaks to understanding your client, asking the right questions before you make the recommendation. Now, if they have got long service leave, they work for the government and they've got a thousand days sick leaves up their yeah, sleeve. Point. Yeah, sure. We'll take a three month wait, throw it in super, whatever. So I think it's all these things dance together and I just think it's at some point it will be fraught with danger to have your income protection policy owned 100% inside super. Absolutely. And there's probably a third element to this too. Um, you might say the elephant in the room. And that is that if – imagine a situation perhaps you're in where you suddenly can't work and medical advice is that you're going to be off work for three months hands down, no chance at all of going back to work in three months. If we're sitting outside of super, an insurer can look at that and say, this is a clear-cut case of not going back to work in three months. Here's three months of your benefit. Off you go. Yeah. One claim form. There's three months. Thanks for coming. See you later. Call us in three months if you're not back at work yet. That can't happen in super. No. You actually, these payments have to be made sort of um, in a sort of a review situation. So, you know, it's got to be, have you been off work for that month? Here's that particular benefit. And then the next month assessed, et cetera, et cetera. Now that may not necessarily be a big deal, but it's just these one percenters that I think really speak to the value of holding that product outside of super. Do we get, like generally speaking, with the split pol- policy benefits, yep. so we might have 80% of it funded through super, 20% outside, do those split policies work the same as 100% outside of super or are there still some catch-all traps that we need to know about these um, split super link hybrid policies? I wouldn't say there was necessarily particular traps per se. I think that, that to use your example, that 80-20, you definitely do get the, uh, the non-super value from holding those elements outside of super. One of the common... Um, issues, shall we say, with splitting the contract is whenever the word super is mentioned, you have to assume there's a third person in the room. Um, So that trustee needs to be involved. And would you say the claims team would have to work with the trustee for the trustee to knock it on the head, then come back into outside super land? In essence, yeah. So the trustees have to do their determination first, make sure that if a benefit can be paid through super, that it is paid through super. And then anything that's knocked back is then looked outside Mm. of super. And this, of course, adds time and adds delay to that claims process. Now, it may not necessarily be an extended period, but depending on the super trustees and the frequency with which they meet, uh, it can extend somewhat. What makes me really nervous about the industry contracts is that they're not really guaranteed renewable and they you know, are open to being changed at any point. You keep your eye pretty closely on those changes. Can you make any comment, Adam, to as to whether, you know, that's something that's happening regularly and something that we that is a real concern or is it is that a bit of a beat up? And Danny, you're talking about industry super funds and default 
uh, group IP cover. That's right. Yeah. So, yes, uh, is it happening? It is. Uh, And I think one of the things, if you're not familiar in the retail space, you know, if we were to make a change to a product, that change, um, if it's made for the worse, we effectively need to close that sort of series, that IP series in your example, to protect those existing policyholders' lives insured. But in the group space, there's a number of levers that they have to really manage that that contract. And that can actually mean making changes for the worse. Um, And... It is something that we do tend to see, and that might be in the form of change to definitions. It could mean reduced amounts paid out. It could be increased offsets that are applied to certain policies. Uh, but it is absolutely something that we tend to find. Um, and, you know, if you're kind of th- sitting there thinking, well, how is this? How does this work? Um, you know, to Glenn's point around this default approach, often people that actually come to take out these products, it's just, you know, more or less from a timely employer contribution like there's no underwriting or uh, attempt at actually presenting yourself to the insurer to say here I am will you take me on and at what risk so I think with that comes that trade-off in terms of that construct of the product yeah and I'd I'd seen it myself uh, the default group policies within super funds so your industry super funds they're usually a three-year term with the different insurers and I, a client sent in a, a letter to me, and this was maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago, and it was MTAA, and the document said, existing definition, you're unlikely to go back to work ever again. New wording, you're unable to. And it'd be easier for a panel of doctors to go, yeah, unable, sure. But for someone to hang their hat on unable ever again, that is a wholesale change to the policy. There are so many shades of grey when it comes to TPD, so that any occupation definition, um, that standard that the government has set, is more around that you know unlikely to work in any occupation. But the variation in the wording uh, is That's quite varied. That. Mm. Yeah, so so they're just examples that we see in the group side uh, on TPD, but the same thing can happen with IP with group policies. Correct. Yeah. So, correct. So anything else that you know, we need to be aware about with IP contracts when we're presenting these to our clients and some of the nuances in the in the PDS that people need to be aware about. I think one of the ones that we perhaps haven't spoken about today is that they can have this um, almost approach to it's going to be a bit onerous to take out the income protection policy in the retail space. But with that comes a level of security so that if you decide to change the work that you're doing down the track, um, you know, with certain group contracts, it's the occupation that's uh, at, happening at claim, which is likely to be um, assessed. You know, if it's too risky, does it call into question the validity of actually getting a claim through that IP product? So um, I think having a look broadly at uh, that particular approach to say, look, would you rather do a bit of the league work now while you're fit and healthy or perhaps at claim time when your health is substandard? Yeah. The, I guess the one thing I've taken out of this and looking back when I was an advisor, I would be totally talking to my clients about, yes, the waiting period, but looking at the PDS for who you're recommending and just explain to the client the ability to work in the waiting period and explaining potential offsets, particularly if they have elected for cash flow reasons or whatever, to have 100% of their IP funded in super. 
And I guess another, just to add to that, Glenn, another consideration is how many days you need to be totally consecutively disabled during a waiting period to actually qualify for that benefit mm. at the end of the wait. That, that's a that's still quite a, a big pendulum in, in in many retail contracts. So there's all there's always a cost benefit. So there's also you know if you are looking for that more affordable contract, those sort of style of of contracts might be really suitable for your client as long as they're aware of how it's actually going to work. And I think we know one thing, change is coming with uh, the IP insurance world. Uh, We know that uh, all policies will be basically guaranteed uh, for only five years maximum. We know that the look back for income at the moment is going to be 12 months. So, Indemnity is the new norm. Yeah, and I I think that's a really nice way to maybe end this discussion around IP is, Adam, you've had a little bit of insight into what this world might look like going forward. What are your opinions on, you know, how the insurance space from a product IP, you know, lens, how how is that going to work? Or how do you think, like, what do you think we're going to see and continue to see? I think we're going to see a lot more change. Uh, I think we're going to have a greater focus on affordability and that is likely to come at the expense of quality to a degree. I think the sorts of features and benefits that we've enjoyed over the last many years uh, are likely to, to drop away. Um, and I think with change, there may be a level of you know, trepidation or concern that advisors may have, but I truly believe this is going to be a fantastic opportunity for advisors because there's going to be so much change that it's really going to see, I think, an increased need for advisors to be able to engage with their customers and clients. Do you think we'll see a whole spate of new style of income protection contracts or, or, or a, a different way of kind of... Um catering to that need like what what do you think definitely Uh, i mean the products that we have on market today won't be on market in you know one two or three years time well thank you for joining us adam and thank you for injecting all of your curly questions you're welcome yeah and uh (laughs) next when we speak to you we'll be talking about lump sum benefits and diving into the devils that exist within those contracts chat soon thanks guys Thank you so much for listening today. If you are in the advice world and you've made it this far, my question to you is, who can you forward this episode to? Thank you so much for listening. This was made possible because of My Risk Advisor. You can head over to the Facebook group, My Risk Advisor, and join in on the conversation.